through the book of Zechariah and then Tim and Mark, two of the other elders here have been working through 1 Samuel. So we're back this morning in Zechariah chapter 3. We'll look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Uh, if you're looking at one of our hardback Bibles, it's page 746. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got the Bible open. You can follow along as, as we move through it. Um, all we're aiming to do when we preach the Bible is, is to, to preach the Bible. So you heard me use that word exposit. That just means you're exposing what's there. That's all we're trying to do is just point to what's there in the text, in God's word. So it'd be helpful to have a copy of God's word open. Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide if that's helpful for you to see where we're going. Write anything down that, that you want to remember for later that you think be helpful. Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Um, I'm always amazed with, um, with the person who never gets anything on their clothes, in particular when they're eating. And what I've come to realize throughout life is, um, is that that's more normal. I think I'm just bad at it. So when I look around, I see other adults that are able to eat meals and not get food on themselves. Um, but that's just not me. And so I even remember this past week eating, eating chips and queso and having a napkin, still like a cartoon character or something, a napkin stuck in, in my shirt, hanging down because I knew that I was gonna drip queso on myself. And I did, and praise the Lord, I had that napkin. And afterwards, I folded up that napkin and, and I threw it away. I'm always impressed when I see somebody else who, who doesn't get food on their clothes. Well, one picture the Bible gives us, gives us of our, our sinfulness, and if you, if you read the passage ahead this past week, you saw it, but one image the Bible gives us is that our sinfulness is like wearing dirty clothes. That's kind of a, a running theme throughout this passage. That's the imagery the Lord gives to Zechariah in the vision of Zechariah chapter 3. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Okay, well, let's get a brief recap where we know where we are in, in the book of Zechariah. So in the Bible, there, there's a group of books called the prophetic books. And, and those are just the words that God gives to his prophets. And a prophet was just somebody that received the word of the Lord supernaturally. God just gives them his word. And then their job is to speak God's word to God's people. Well, that's Zechariah. He's one of these prophets and he's speaking God's word to the people on the heels of God's people being brought back into the promised land. So because of their sin, they were in the promised land, but because of their sin, they got put out of the promised land. They refused to repent. God continued to come to them and say, hey, repent, trust me, obey me. They didn't do that. So sin has consequences. Our God's a good God. So he puts them out of the promised land. Well, because he's gracious, he, he had brought them back in. And that's the time when Zechariah is prophesying the people have been brought back into, uh, into the promised land. In the book of, of Zechariah, remember, it begins with these eight visions, these eight supernatural visions that the Lord gives to Zechariah. So we looked at the first three of those already, the four horses and the craftsmen that are filing down the horns that are talking about God's enemies and the guy wanting to measure the city in order to put up walls. And the angel says, no, don't do that. This city's too good for that. Well, this morning we come to the fourth vision and it's a little bit different 
So, so whereas the first three visions were dealing with God's plans for the external enemies of God's people, how to handle them, well, this vision is talking about the enemy inside of his people. So this vision is talking about how God's going to deal with our sin. That's a significant thing because Satan and the enemies of God in the world, they could all be defeated. But if that was it, we still wouldn't be able to be in God's presence because of our sin that enemy that's on the inside of us. So the fourth vision here is God describing to us how that enemy will be defeated. And it's, it's set up like a courtroom scene. You just heard it, but it's a courtroom scene. Look at the setup again, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, so the the high priest, we're going to talk about what that means, but the high priest is is Joshua. He's the defendant here in the courtroom. And God is the judge. So so the angel of the Lord is the one who's speaking for God, but God's the judge. And then Satan is the prosecuting attorney. He's the one that's trying to get a conviction here of the defendant. Like we're told at the end of verse 1, Satan is there to accuse him, Joshua. So, So that's the scene. Okay, so what is it that we're going to be taught out of this passage? Well, at least five things. You can see them on the back of the outline there. First, everyone is a sinner. It's the first thing we're going to see. Second, God takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. Third, connected to that second thing, this can only happen because of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. And then there's these two applications for us that we see from the passage. So fourth point be assured of your uh, righteousness in Christ, and then fifth, invite others to live under this blessing. So, So first, everyone is a sinner. So this vision in Zechariah 3, again, it takes place in a courtroom, and the defendant is this guy, Joshua, who who we're told is the high priest. Now, Now, if you're newer to the Bible, a few things to understand. First, the entire Old Testament, so the first half of the Bible, the entire Old Testament, It's about one group of ethnic people. It's about one nation, which is Israel, the Jewish people. The whole story of the Old Testament is is taken up with them. Second, but because Israel, just like everybody else, are sinners, God had to make a way for them to get to him. So ever since the fall of man, where Adam and Eve bring sin into the world in Genesis 3, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible, is a story of God getting his people back. Because there's this barrier of sin that has separated us from a holy God. That's the story of the Bible. The story of redemption is God getting his people back into his presence. Well, in the Old Testament, he sets up a system to take care of that at least temporarily. And it's the sacrificial system. So it's the system in which animals are allowed to be brought forth and be sacrificed in order to temporarily put off the sin of God's people and allow them to have fellowship with the Lord. Well, that's what the priesthood was for. So Joshua is the high priest. He's the one who's sort of set over all the other priests at the time when when Israel comes back into the promised land here in Zechariah. But that's what the priest's job was. It was to bring the people to God by executing this system of, of sacrificing animals putting blood on the altar, all these things that you see so often uh, written about in in the Old Testament. So that's the priesthood, and that's who Joshua is. He's this high priest. And because the role of the priest was to bring God's people to God, what that means is the priest had to have a certain degree of holiness that was more than everybody else. And that makes sense, right? The priest was the one who was bringing these sinful people to God. So the priest, there was a higher standard for the priest. So you can read about it in the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular, there were more strict dietary laws for somebody who was a priest than for just the rest of the Israelites. There were more strict purity laws. There were certain things he couldn't do that other Israelites were allowed to do. There were even specifications for his physical appearance and his health. So I'll give you one wild one. His legs had to be the same length. So if one leg was longer than the other, couldn't serve as a priest. Now, is that because God uh, sort of had some sort of meanness in his heart against somebody? Well, no, of course not. No, but it's pointing to a truth, which is the one who's bringing God's people before God, that person has to be holy. That person has to be pure. 
has to represent sort of wholeness. But look at the charge. So that's who Zechariah is supposed to be. Look at the charge Satan makes against this high priest. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, let's pause for a second, talk about the one who's doing the accusing here. So remember, God didn't just, in terms of rational creatures, God didn't just create people. He also created angels. And at some point, we're not given the details, there's some mystery here, but at some point between creating angels and Genesis 3, a group of angels defect. Same way Adam and Eve did, they turned away and rebelled. A group of angels do that. They rebel against the Lord. Well, the chief of those rebels, the leader, is oftentimes in the Bible referred to as Satan. You may have heard this before, but that Hebrew word, it's the word for accuser. Isn't that something? That's his title. So what we see him doing here is fitting for him. And that's why God gives him that name, Satan, the accuser. We see Satan doing that in the book of Job, don't we? Very beginning of Job, you remember, Satan comes to the Lord and he says, hey, uh, uh, he's going and he's looking for somebody to test. And God says, have you considered Job? And Satan basically says, oh, I can get Job to fold and to curse you. And what Satan says is, it's only, Lord, it's only because you've given Job a good family and health and wealth. It's only because his life is easy. But if we took those things away, then Job would certainly curse you to your face, Satan says. So see, he's the accuser. It's what he does. We, we see the same thing in Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. And so that's exactly what Satan does here. He lives up to his name. He's accusing Joshua. He shows up in this courtroom scene, and he's accusing Joshua, the high priest. And, and what is it that he's accusing him of? He's accusing him of sin. He's accusing him of disobedience to God. The picture we're given in verse 3 is that Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. But see, we know that's symbolic of his sin, because down in verse 4, the end of verse 4, they were told, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And iniquity, that word just means the guilt that we have because of our sin. So that's what's happening here with Joshua. Satan's accusing him by calling him a sinner. And Satan does the same thing for you and the same thing about me. If, if Satan was in this room and, and he gave an evaluation of you, he'd point his finger at you and he would say, sinner. That's what he does. But, but the, the thing that's, that's interesting is he would be exactly right when he would make that accusation against us. So it's interesting here in our, in our passage, God speaks up for Joshua. Satan's accusing him. God speaks up for Joshua, but he doesn't dispute the charge. So look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So this is something, God doesn't rush in and say, no, Satan, you don't understand. No, Joshua's not a sinner. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Satan, you don't understand. Joshua was justified when he acted this way. The way that we oftentimes try to justify ourselves in our sin, God doesn't do that on behalf of, of Joshua. He doesn't try to defend him in that way. No, in essence, God says, yes, Joshua is a sinner. At the end of verse 2, he calls him a brand plucked from the fire. We don't use that terminology too often anymore, but a brand or a fire brand, that was a piece of wood that would be burning in the fire, right? Like a log that was there in the midst of it. Well, that's what God says Joshua is like. He says he's like a piece of wood that was burning in the fire and that God pulled out of the fire. But see, the thing about pulling a piece of wood out of the fire is that that wood is messy. It's covered in black ash. You guys know this. So, so this past week, uh, this past Friday, we burned some stuff in, in our fire pit on Friday and the kids were out there playing. And sort of the chief thing I'm thinking is, don't let the kids get burned. That's a good first thing. So that's what I'm thinking first. But after that, I'm thinking, and don't let them fiddle with any of the wood that had been burned. Because if they do, it's going to get on them, and then it's going to spread everywhere, because that's what ash does. 
So see, that's the picture here. The picture is that Joshua is filthy. He's covered in black ash. The Lord compares him to a piece of wood that's been burned that's then pulled out of the fire pit. So God is admitting that Joshua is a sinner. And we are sinners too. Everyone in this room is. Listen to, I'll just read two verses, both from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. And then I'll read 7 verse 29. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I could read a hundred verses from the Bible that all say the same thing. We're sinners. Nobody is righteous. Jesus gets at the same truth, Luke 18, 19, when he says, no one is good except God alone. That's the truth. And see, this is made even more clear in our passage because of who the subject is. Joshua is the high priest. He's the one responsible to, to take God's people before God. If there's anybody that's supposed to be holy, it's the high priest. But see, he's not holy. So if the high priest is sinful, the implication is, okay, well, everybody else is sinful too. Look again at the picture we're given of Joshua's sin, verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. You might remember what Jesus tells the Pharisees, who were the religious teachers of his day. This is Matthew 23, 27. He says to them, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So what Jesus is getting at there, what we see in Zechariah 3, as humans, we're good at making ourselves look good on the outside. That's just something that we pick up early on in life. As we get older, we get better at it. We know how to make ourselves look good to other people, to look virtuous, to look holy. But, but we only look that way because other people can't see our hearts. Our sinful nature is dark. My heart is dark. Your hearts are dark. And see, if, if our outside looked the way our heart oftentimes does, then we'd be covered in filth, just like Joshua. So, so just imagine what you'd look like if you got covered with ash every time you avoided serving somebody else because it was an inconvenience to you, or every time you loved money and possessions more than you loved the Lord, or every time you gossiped or lusted or were jealous. If our sin showed on our outward appearance, we'd, we'd all be filthy. That's the picture we're given here. Verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And of course, the question for us is, do you think about yourself that way? So the way the Lord sees your heart, the way he evaluates you, do you think of yourself this way? Or because you can make yourself look pretty good on the outside, do you begin to think that your heart's pretty good too? and that you're pretty good on your own. See, the danger with that kind of thinking is if, if we begin to think we're pretty good, we'll forget how badly we need a savior, right? The, the sturdier we think we are, the less will rest on Jesus. And so maybe try using this imagery at the beginning of the day. So, so when you first get up, maybe this coming week, think about this. Think, okay, you know, if my sins showed themselves on the outside of me, by the end of the day, I would be covered in black. Or when you get home at night and maybe you're about to go to bed, think about it retroactively. Think, you know what? If all the sins I committed today showed up on the outside of me like ash, I would be filthy. I'd be covered. That's the way we want to think, especially as Christians. We want to understand our sinfulness. And so one, one quick application here. Remembering that you're a sinner, it, it will have a profound bearing on how you accept criticism. So if you think to yourself, okay, this is kind of abstract. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I think I know that. I think I think about that regularly. Okay, well, the test is, how do you accept criticism? Because if you're not good at accepting criticism, that's probably because we think about ourselves as being pretty good. So if somebody criticizes us, we're spring-loaded to think, oh, no, I, I didn't do that. Or there was some reason to do that. So when somebody offers you criticism, you kind of justify yourself really quick. 
Or do you ignore it? Or do you maybe even kind of bite back and, and attack them? You, you won't hear them out because you're so confident that you really don't do much wrong. But see, for the person who regularly remembers he's a sinner, she's a sinner, that's the person who will be quick to hear criticism, quick to hear it, quick to accept it, but because he knows how sinful his heart is. The Christian is the one who, when somebody offers criticism to us, we're kind of thinking, well, of course that's true, and you don't even know the half of it. It's even worse than you know, because that's what's going on on the inside of us. So, so remember that you're a sinner. It's the first thing we see, we're all sinners. But praise God, we, we have hope. The Bible is the story of hope of God saving sinners. And this is our second point from our passage. God takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Look at uh, what God has one of the angels in the courtroom do. Verse four, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, from Joshua. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Okay, so the picture is pretty clear, right? Joshua is a sinner, and that's a problem when you're dealing with a, a perfectly holy God. And as far as our powers are concerned, it's, it's an insurmountable problem because we can't fix it on our own, right? On, on the way to school, taking the kids to school this past week, one of, one of my tires went flat. Praise the Lord, I could hear it. I'm like, oh, okay, that's not right. And get out of the car, and it's, it's leaking air quick. So run the kids back home. Maria takes them to school. I take the tire off and then I drive to the, the tire place. Well, by the time all that was done, taking the tire off, they patched it, but they were really busy. So they said, hey, you can wait a, a, around a while or you can just put it back on yourself. I said, I'll put it back on myself. Well, you guys know you do that. You get all that tire black all over your hands. You get grease all over your hands. Well, the thing is, you, you can't do anything on your own to get rid of that. So when that was all over my hands, I, I needed something else. I needed a clean towel. I needed water. I needed soap, things outside of myself. I, I could have rubbed my hands together, but, but that kind of just would have spread it, right? And made it worse. Well, that's the sinner's problem. We're, we're all filthy with our sin, but every part of us is filthy. There's no part of us where we can clean up ourselves. And that's actually the biggest problem with every other religion in the world. So if you study world religions, if you pay attention to, to neighbors and coworkers and family members that are, that are part of a different religion, not Christian, basically you'll come to understand the idea is do good in order to please the Lord. That's, that's how every other religion works. People that aren't really even that religious but believe in a God, that's kind of the same thing that, that they would think as well. Do good, clean yourself up, and then come to the Lord. But see, it's only Christianity that recognizes we can't clean ourselves up. We have to have God do it for us. So when I had that grease all over my hands, what I needed was water. For Joshua, when he had these filthy clothes, what he needs are clean clothes. As sinners, we need a, a cleansing that comes from outside of us. We saw a great picture of this a few weeks ago, didn't we, with those baptisms. So they're put down into the water, this thing outside of them, and the symbol there is that they're being purified in the blood of Christ. This is the message of the gospel. God fixes our sin problem for us. So we see this picture in this courtroom. Joshua starts out in mud-covered, filthy clothes. Then God intervenes. And then because of God's intervention, Joshua ends up with white, clean clothes. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. And we see this picture throughout the Bible of, of God providing his people with the clothes that they need. We see it in Genesis uh, 3. They're put out of the garden, but they're given clothes from the Lord. We heard Revelation 7, verse 9 in the New Testament reading. And they were told, There was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. It's the same picture in our passage. Joshua's clothes are dirty, so God provides him with clean clothes. That's symbolic. Joshua is a sinner. God provides Joshua with his righteousness. Now, why does God do this? Well, it's because he loves us. 
God loves us. He loves his people. And, and that's not because of anything lovable inside of us. We are not lovable on our own. We're, we're sinful rebels. But God has chosen to love his people. He mentions this to Satan. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So see, God has chosen Jerusalem, is the point he makes to Satan. He's chosen to love this group of people. He's chosen to rescue Joshua out of the fire. And if you're a Christian, he's chosen to rescue you out of the fire too. You were that log in the fire. And he pulled you out, not because of any goodness in you, but because of the goodness found in God, because he's gracious. So praise him for it. God takes our sin, gives us his righteousness. But, and this is our third point this morning, this can only happen through Jesus Christ. It can only happen through Christ. So the vision God gives Zechariah shows God taking Joshua's sins, giving Joshua God's righteousness. But, but we haven't yet talked about the mechanism by which that happens. We talked about it a little bit, but, but not much, which is to do it through Christ. And if you're not too familiar with the Bible, it, it's important to know the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's easy for people to think, okay, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the rest of the New Testament, those parts are about Jesus. But the Old Testament, that's not about Jesus. It absolutely is. Start to finish, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And just like we saw Jesus show up in our passage a few weeks ago, you remember Zechariah 2, verse 11, when we're told that God will send God to his people? It's a picture of Christ. Well, Jesus shows up in this passage, too. So in our passage, Joshua has been given a righteous standing in the courtroom of God. But what about the rest of Israel? So Joshua is made clean, but what about the rest of Israel? Because here's what's interesting. If God's people are going to have their sins taken away, and they're going to have the white garments of righteousness put on them, it's going to take a priest to do that. Somebody representing God's people before God. And, and that's exactly what the angel of the Lord tells Joshua. So the picture is that he's been made righteous, but then look at what the Lord tells him. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Okay, when the Lord talks about the right of access, he's talking about access to him. Joshua, you'll be able to come before me. You'll have access to me. So what we're told is that for a priest to have access to God, to, to get into God's presence on behalf of sinners, and to make a way for those sinners to have a relationship with God, okay, all that requires a priest who, if you look at verse 7 again, it requires the pre, a priest who, as verse 7 says, walks in God's ways and keeps his charge. Okay, in other words, for the priesthood to work, you need a perfect priest one who is holy, one who doesn't have any sin, one who can bring the people to God because the one doing the bringing is not sinful. Well, obviously, that's not Joshua. <laughs> Satan just pointed it out. God doesn't dispute it. Joshua's a sinner, just like every human is a sinner. So, so what's verse 7 about? Is God just setting up his people for failure? He's just saying, yeah, you guys could have been saved if Joshua was, was sinless, but sorry, he's not sinless. So I'll tell you what needs to happen, but you have no hope. No, that's not what the Lord's doing. Here's what's happening. God designed the human priesthood of the Old Testament to point forward to a better priest. That's why the whole thing was designed. Look at verse eight. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. Now, these friends sitting around Joshua, these are the other priests. These are his peers. So he's talking about you and the priests that are sitting before you. Verse 8, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Okay, so these human priests, including Joshua, are a sign. What's a sign do? A sign points to something. So a sign says, here is the restaurant. It's here. Or a sign says, Charlotte is that way. Signs point to things. So what does the priesthood of the Old Testament point to? Verse 8. 
Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Okay, branch there, you see that capital B, because it's talking about a person, an individual who it's giving the nickname of the branch. The priesthood was designed to point ahead to this person that God calls the branch. And this branch is spoken about in other Old Testament prophets. I'll read you one. This is Jeremiah 23, verse 5. If you're in the habit of writing in your Bible the way that I am, because maybe your memory is bad like mine, you might want to write in the margin there, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, next to the branch. This is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so in the Old Testament, there's this ongoing prophecy that a descendant of David's will spring out of nowhere like a branch, an unexpected branch that comes off of a tree. And he will sit on the throne to rule God's kingdom in the way it's supposed to be ruled. Well, this is a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the branch. And what we're told here in verse 8 is the reason God instituted the priesthood of the Old Testament was to be a sign pointing ahead to that coming Savior. So God knows Joshua's not going to keep the commandments perfectly. God knows that. But that was never the plan. The design was always for Joshua and the other priests to point forward to the one who would keep God's law perfectly on behalf of sinners, who would walk perfectly in God's ways, like verse 7 says. It was always pointing forward to our perfect high priest. But see, here's how Jesus' task was, was fundamentally different from the task of the Old Testament priests like Joshua. The Old Testament priests, remember, the way they served the people was by offering animals on the altar. Those animals giving up their lives so that the people's sins could temporarily be, be paid for. Not fully, but in part, at least to put off God's wrath. Now, Jesus, he'll be a servant too, the same way those priests were a servant. In fact, at the end of verse 8, God calls him, my servant, the branch. Okay, so how will Jesus' service be different from the Old Testament priest's service? Well, listen to Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus says about himself, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, okay, what's his service look like? And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came not to offer animal sacrifices, but to offer his own life, to offer himself. That's what he did on the cross. Now, why did he have to do that? Why did he have to die on the cross? Well, again, it's because God is holy and sin has to be dealt with. So somebody has to give their life to pay for sins. And see, for individual sinners, there's only two options for how their sin can be paid for. One option is the actual sinner, he or she, pays for their own sin. They take it on their own shoulders. But, but the thing is, the payment fits the crime. So, so since the sins we commit are against an infinitely worthy and holy and innocent God, that means the punishment is an infinite punishment. That's why Jesus talks about the fires of hell being eternal, goes on forever. That's what's merited. That's what fits with sin against an eternally good and holy God. But see, God's so gracious, he offers us an alternative. He offers us a way to be saved through Christ taking our punishment on himself. We preached through Galatians a few months ago. Be reminded about how Paul says it in Galatians 3, verse 13. And there he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ becomes a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay, so if, if somebody doesn't obey God's law. They deserve to be cursed. But see, Jesus was cursed for us. He took our spot. He substituted himself for us. He took the curse on him by being punished for our sins on the cross. And that's the gospel. 
And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's what the Lord is urging you to believe this morning, is to accept the fact that that's exactly why Christ came, was to pay for the sins of sinners so that we can be reconciled to God. But, but there's only one way for it to happen. It's only through Christ. Trust in him alone. So, so what the Lord would have you do is trust in Jesus. Run to Christ by putting your hope and confidence in him so that the Lord, through that trust in Christ, will take away your dirty clothes and give you pure righteous clothes, give you the righteousness of Jesus. So come and talk to me about that if you're interested in thinking more about the gospel, or even if right now, if, if you decide to believe that, come talk to me about that. For us as Christians here, we, we know how good this news is. All of our sins have been forgiven in Christ, but, but it gets even better than that. Notice there's two things that happened to Joshua in this passage. So verse four, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Okay, so the two things, the dirty clothes are taken away. That's like our sin being taken away. But then there's this second action where the Lord then provides clean clothes. Jesus' work on the cross, it, it doesn't simply erase your sins. It does that, but it also provides you with a positive righteousness. To, to use a banking metaphor, Jesus' life and death, it doesn't just cancel your debt and bring you to a balance of zero. No, it cancels your debt, but then it fills up your account. Jesus does both of those things. It, his work doesn't just put you in the category of a non-sinner. It puts you in the category of someone who God is actually pleased with. And the, the fancy theological term here is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? But impute, imputation, impute just means to count toward somebody or to reckon to them. It's, it's a banking metaphor. So what they have counts toward you. It's like they deposited it into your account. So the idea is, as a Christian, through your belief in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to your account. Listen to the way we say it in our church's confession of faith. We say, by faith, his, Jesus, his perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us by God. And our readings throughout the service have all been getting at this truth. So our call to worship included 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So if you're a Christian, Christ has become righteousness for you. It's been imputed from his account to your account. Our assurance of forgiveness included Philippians 3.8. And there Paul says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So what he's saying is because you trust in Christ, you've been united to him, you're found in him, and that means you get his righteousness. His righteous standing is given to you. But I think probably the most helpful and succinct verse comes from our congregational reading. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Christ became sin, we're told. Now we know that doesn't mean he actually sinned. The, the passage actually tells us that's not the case. He never sinned. No, the way he was made to be sin was him being counted as a sinner. He took on the status of a sinner when he went to the cross. But see, likewise, Paul tells us here, that means we become the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean that we're actually perfectly righteous. In reality, on the ground, we're not righteous. We, we continue to sin, but see, our status has changed. Just like Jesus took on the status of sinner through faith in Christ, we get the status of righteous. We become the righteousness of God. And, and this is better than us simply having our sins forgiven. 
Listen to the way one guy says it. This is a New Testament scholar. His name was Leon Morris. He says it this way about these two different things and how it's better to have Jesus' righteousness rather than to simply have your sins forgiven. He says, notice, this means more than just being pardoned. The pardoned criminal bears no penalty, but he bears a stigma. He is a criminal, and he is known as a criminal, albeit an unpunished one. The justified sinner not only bears no penalty, he is righteous. He is not a man with his sins still about him. So do you see the difference? Joshua's clothes, the filthy clothes, could have been taken away, but it's much better for those righteous, pure clothes to be given to him. That's exactly what Jesus does. Through the cross, he takes off your filthy clothes, your sins are forgiven, but he does more than that. He also clothes you with his righteousness. Verse 5, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. God takes away your sin and gives you righteousness through Jesus. Okay, so what do we do with this truth? As we close, how should we respond? Two main things we see in our passage. First, be assured of your righteousness in Christ. Verse 6, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. God wants us to be assured. So, so remember how the passage opens. It starts with Satan accusing Joshua of sin, but God wants his people to be assured of their salvation. In fact, it looks like that's what this image of the stone is getting at. I don't know if you picked up on that as we read it. Look at verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Okay, so what is this stone about? We're told there's an inscription on it, something's carved on it, it's engraved, but we aren't told what that inscription says. Well, we've already seen how often the book of Revelation is connected to Zechariah. Well, there's a vision in Revelation of a stone with an inscription. I think that's our key here. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. We're told, to the one who conquers, so for the Christian, the one who's faithful to Christ throughout this life, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, that bread-like substance in the Old Testament, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so if that's the connection, the stone in Zechariah would be getting at assurance. God gives you this thing to remind you, no, you really are mine, right? And that would fit under the heading in verse 6, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So whatever it is, this stone seems to be part of what assures God's people. No, your sins have been paid for. God really will fulfill his promise to, to save you. So it's about God's assurance. And, and this is relevant to us, this, this note of assurance, because Satan will do the same thing to you that he does to Joshua. He will try to get you to believe that because you're a sinner, that means you're not good enough for the Lord and you're separate from him. In other words, he'll try to get you to disbelieve the gospel, to think that your status in God's eyes as his innocent child is dependent on your own strength and virtue. That's what Satan will try to do. So when he points out your sin to you, that's what he's trying to do, to get you to think, oh, my status before God is in jeopardy because I've sinned. And of course, if that was the case, we'd all lose our righteous status. But see, as a Christian, you're standing in God's eyes. It's not dependent on your goodness. It's dependent on Jesus's goodness on your behalf. So when we're tempted to be discouraged by Satan and, and satanic forces, what do we do? Well, we're about to sing it in before the throne of God above. You remember this line? It's the second verse. He says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, same thing he does with Zechariah, he does it with us, or with Joshua rather, upward I look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. So when Satan accuses you of your sin, point to Jesus who covers those sins and gives you a righteous status. That's what the Lord does here when he rebukes Satan. 
And see, we have to use it even apart from Satan because we don't need Satan to accuse us. Our own conscience accuses us too, doesn't it? Some of us more than others. You know, aren't there times when you'll sin in a particular way and then almost instantly you have the thought, I can't believe I sinned in this way. Am I even a Christian? I sin, I continue to sin. Am I even a Christian? I think most of us have had that thought. What should we do in that situation? Well, that's when we preach the gospel to ourselves. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, our conscience says, you're not good enough, God is greater than our heart. Isn't that good news? Your conscience, when you sin and your conscience is saying, you're not even a Christian, you're not good enough for the Lord, your conscience doesn't get the final word on whether you're righteous in God's eyes. It just doesn't. Your conscience doesn't get the final word. God gets the final word. And in Romans 8, verse 1, he's told you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in the same way the Lord rebukes Satan in verse 3 of our passage, let the word of the Lord rebuke your conscience when you're doubting your salvation because of your sin. Let the word of God rebuke Satan. Look down at the end of verse 9. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So see, at the cross, Jesus removed our iniquity on a single day. And, and now for the Christian, to use the words of Psalm 103, verse 12, he's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And he's given you Jesus' righteousness. So through your trust in Christ, your status is, is locked in for all eternity, and that status is righteous. So be assured of that. It's one thing that the Lord wants you to do with this passage, be assured because of it. And finally, last point, invite others to live under this blessing. So because of everything that we've just understood from this passage, what do we do with it? Second application, invite others to live under this blessing. Look at the note the vision ends on in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So as those who have experienced the blessing of having our sins covered and being given Christ's righteousness, we should invite others to live under this blessing. That's what that imagery is getting at, living under the vine, it's like protection, shade, provision, but then also under the fig tree where you have that food. So your needs are all provided for. It's just a picture of the salvation we have in Christ. So we're supposed to call others to come and live under this blessing. So, so first, invite non-Christians to live under this blessing. So pray for opportunities to tell the gospel to non-Christians. Oftentimes we don't pray for that. Oftentimes I don't pray for that. That makes no sense. Pray for the opportunity to give the gospel to non-Christians. And when God answers that prayer and gives us the opportunity, take it, right? Take that opportunity. Like Paul says in Romans 10, no one can call on the name of the Lord and be saved unless somebody tells them about the gospel. So let's pray we'd be faithful to do that. Verse 10, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. But the second category in which we get to do that, it's one you'll have more opportunity to do. And it's one that you're actually committed to do formally, at least if you're a member of this church, which is to invite your fellow church members to live under this blessing. Even as Christians, we, we regularly forget how good the gospel is, don't we? It happens all the time. So remind one another of that. Point it out in conversation. You know, as, as members of this church, it's, it's fine for us to talk to one another about the weather and sports and upcoming events in our life and all those things, but let's be sure to also talk to one another about how good the gospel is. That, that kind of conversation invites us to come under the vine and, and under the fig tree. As members of this church, pray through the directory for your fellow members, that, that we'd all fully embrace that truth of the gospel. You know, we, we need all the reminding we can get, right? <laughs> because we're sinners. We need reminding of that. We're sinners. But, but that because of his grace in Christ, 
God has taken away our sin and given us his righteousness. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for this good news. Father, the, the, the gospel is such good news. We never could have come up with it. We, we would have come up with something much more meager, something that, that didn't work. Father, something like all the other world religions where we have to clean ourselves up. But we confess to you what you already know. We can't clean ourselves up. We are like that stick that's pulled out of the fire and is covered with black ash that is our sin. We're so thankful that's not a surprise to you. You're the one that pulled us out of the fire. And Father, that, that you have a plan for that. And the plan is that through trust alone in Christ alone, our sinful record is expunged, sent away. But not only that, Father, even better than that, Jesus's righteous standing is given to us. So thankful that we get to wear these pure clothes in your sight, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Christ did on our behalf. We pray that truth would change us more and more every day, and you'd be honored. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.